Welcome to No Wrong Answers, the podcast that gives you a teacherly take on the world. I'm your host, Kyle Palmer. And in this special edition, we are coming to you in front of a live audience from the Shawnee Mission School District Center for Academic Achievement in Overland Park, Kansas. Are our schools safe? Not just from gun violence, but also from the many causes that can lead to gun violence. Can schools, teachers, and administrators do more? Is it fair, for instance, to ask or expect some teachers to be armed? Or is it up to lawmakers and state legislatures to craft new gun policies to try to ensure that guns don't get into schools in the first place? And finally, considering the national upwelling of activism since the Florida school shooting, has something about this topic and the way we talk about it fundamentally changed? Well, let's meet our panel. First, to our, my immediate left, maybe the most popular, well-known man on this stage, at least among this crowd. David Muhammad, you are a teacher in the Shawnee Mission District. What do you teach and where do you teach? Uh, I currently teach at Shawnee Mission East and I teach uh, World Regional Studies, Economics, and International Relations. I should say David participates often on the No Wrong Answers podcast. Juliana Kantner, you're a student. What grade are you in and where do you go to school? I'm a junior at Shawnee Mission Northwest. And she's very busy. You just yes. came from swim practice. Yes, I did. Yeah, we had a meet last night. <laughs> Dr. Aaron Hambrick, what do you do? I am a professor or an assistant professor of psychology at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. And I study children who've been exposed to trauma and other forms of early life adversity. And Chief John Douglas, you work for the district. What is your role? I'm the executive director of emergency services. And John Douglas, Aaron Hambrick, Juliana Kantner, and David Muhammad, thank you so much for being on our panel. It happened again. Another shooting at a school in America, this time at Great Mills High School in Maryland. Two students, a girl, 16, and a boy, 14, were injured, the girl critically. The alleged gunman, a 17-year-old and also a Great Mills student, was killed. A quick-thinking school resource officer is credited with confronting the gunman soon after the shooting began and heading off what could potentially have been a much deadlier situation. According to the nonprofit gun control advocacy group Every Town for Gun Safety, this was the third deadly shooting to occur on the campus of an American school since the mass shooting in Parkland, Florida on Valentine's Day. As CNN notes, there is on average more than one shooting per week that leaves someone dead or injured on an American K-12 or college campus. Despite or maybe because of the grim predictability of school shootings, students around the country, including here in the Kansas City area, seem more called to action and more outspoken about school safety and gun violence. Just last week, students across the U.S. participated in the National Student Walkout. As a result of all this, teachers, administrators, and lawmakers, in other words, adults, feel compelled to listen, maybe more than ever before, to what kids have to say. So that's the context with which we come here tonight. So I want to turn to um, my panel now, and I'll start with Juliana and David, my student and teacher. And I'll ask this, and you can consider it in your different ways, but are you scared at school? I don't think scared is the, the word that I would use on a personal level. I think, if anything, there's a heightened sense of awareness of anxiety um, and that, that energy that you feel from uh, these, these students and the teachers creates a, a different kind of environment as a barrier to the learning that we want to get to as educators. You can't not address it. But at the same time, there's also like a desensitization to it. Like what just happened um, two days ago, which you mentioned in Maryland, it almost got looked over as a smaller event, which is somewhat saddening and 
uh, making me wonder, is this becoming the new norm that we're just going to hear about it and move on? So, John Douglas, you've told me that you consider part of your job to to actually study uh, the school shootings that happen in other places, um, so be, to, to learn from them and, and think about how the, the lessons could be applied to, to this district. So uh, I guess, what have you learned for re from recent examples? I think it's important to understand that, that each of these events, there is no one pattern to it. There's a lot of similarities, very similar DNA, if you will, but they are very, adaptive and they tend to adapt to the things that we do to challenge them. Um, it's grim. When I first came here four years ago in May, I spent almost a summer reading the official reports from um, the shooting in Connecticut. And to tell you the truth, I could only read a little bit each day because it was pretty sad. Uh, Dr. Aaron Hammer, we've heard a lot since Parkland about the idea of hardening schools, right? You hear that term a lot. And from a psychological and emotional perspective for students who have to go to schools where there are very clear hardening techniques, security cameras, locked doors, uh, armed guards. What's the psychological or emotional effect of that going to a school? I think we have to think about what we are uh, queuing. Are we queuing safety or are we queuing for danger? How are we talking about um, the, the new things that are showing up? Are we talking about it or are signs just showing up in places in the hallway that haven't been discussed or now there's a camera over here and I don't know what that is or I don't know what that means. And uh, my kind of rule of thumb is for every danger cue, we need about nine or 10 non-danger cues, right? Nine or 10 pats on the back, nine or 10 people saying, how you doing today? I noticed you looking at that sign. I was just telling, um, telling him about how now at, at you KC where I teach. One day I walked in and all of a sudden there was a sign up that told me what to do in case of an active shooter and I was, you know, kind of right on time for lecture, not late, but right on time and I look over and I see that and I just kind of felt my, my heart jump up and I thought, gosh, I wonder what the students are thinking. And so I took a minute at the beginning of class to acknowledge there's a new sign up. Let's talk about this. What are, your, what are your concerns? What do you want to talk about in terms of how to be safe in this classroom uh, if something were to happen to open that space and to acknowledge the fear? Because when we don't acknowledge it, I, I think it can easily grow. Well, you said, I wonder what the students are thinking. Well, we have a student here. Um, I, I guess, when, what are you thinking? Uh, do you see different cues that are both positive and negative that mm -hmm. Dr. Hamburg was describing? And how do you process those during the day? Mm -hmm. Uh, so at my school recently, following Florida, they actually talked about the security measures that you mentioned. So uh, that probably was a positive thing to have those discussions, to be able to air out the concerns in our classes. And I had a especially helpful teacher that really takes those things seriously and wants students to express their concerns. So The New York Times dubbed your generation the mass shooting generation. Is that... Fair? Do you agree with that? Uh, I think actually that question like really highlights one of the largest problems with what's happening. The fact that it's almost being glamorized in news sources and media um, and the fact that it's kind of like a trend. I don't think that that's the way that media should be painting school shootings because they shouldn't be a trend and it shouldn't be normal and it's not something that we should be labeling a group of people because that's obviously not what we want for our future, not what we want for our students, for our schools, for safety. Uh, so no, I don't think 
my generation should be labeled the mass shooting generation. I think we, that we should be moving towards declining what's happening, declining all the violence and uh, making change. Uh, off of that, David, you've told me on a recent No Wrong Answers podcast, that was something I must say, um, that you sense really an unprecedented energy in your students over this issue um, that's been brought up by school shootings, I mean, gun control, gun violence, all the other tangential issues that come with it. Um, why do you think things are different? I think that this particular generation of youth has been primed with protest culture dating back to Mike Brown, Trayvon Martin, and the Black Lives Matter movement. You've had the Women's March as well. And not to make things in a, a political nature at all, but you cannot deny also the fact that uh, with the, the recent presidential election that a lot more people are a lot more vocal on whichever side of the aisle they're on, right? And so I think that that energy within society has created a, a, a powder keg of youth that are just ready to latch on to something. They want to be a part of the right side of history. With this social media culture, kids are always like one step away from going viral or tweeting and feeling like they are validated by their likes, right? My voice matters, and I can tell you it matters because I got 500 likes, right? And look at all the views that I have. So that means I have power. And I think that that's, it can be dangerous, but it also can be very, um, it can be very powerful when a kid says, I don't need to wait for my teacher's permission or for some legislation. I'm just gonna go do it right now. We're gonna Facebook Live it and you're gonna Facebook Live it and we're gonna get thousands and thousands of responses and we're gonna create our own events. And I mean, even if you date back to something like the Egyptian Revolution, which was started as a Facebook event, you know, and you had people live tweeting to uh, uh, people in Ferguson how to deal with uh, like gas masks and things of that nature. So I think that this youth generation is ready for this moment and they just took it, took charge. John Douglas, off of this discussion of student agency and student voice, I guess as a district leader, what responsibility do you feel um, to not only evolve school safety protocols like we were talking about earlier, but also to kind of take in student feedback, engage student feelings and those protocol and procedures effects on student feeling? As a, as a school district, it's not our obligation, in fact, it's not our role to prompt or push our students into political activism. But it is our role to protect their right to do so. I mean, I was asked today by reporters that we had a walkout up at one of our middle schools, and I gotta right. tell you, I was extremely proud of those kids. They organized it, they put it together, they were very well disciplined amongst themselves, they made their point, they went right back into school, uh, it, was, it was a thing of beauty, and, and talking to them, talking to the news afterwards, that's what I said. And then they asked, well, you know, is this unusual? And I said, well, you're talking to a guy who went to high school in 1969. And let me tell you, for all of those who are here, getting our voices heard and being a generation that wanted to promote change is part of our, is part of our national DNA. So it's not something to be resisted, and it's not something to be contained, it's something to be nurtured and taught in the right and proper way. You know, interesting, David, on the last episode of No Wrong Answers, we talked about how, um, you know, our teachers felt that, or, or they're told, were told by their students that um, their students felt kind of limited or they were chafing against authority because they felt like maybe the, the walkouts and the, the, the organized protests were a little bit too organized mm -hmm. and um, that they had to kind of get permission slips to, to walk out and protest. And I guess for the last question I have in this section of this event, uh, Juliana and David, 
do you feel like students' concerns and voices are authentically being voiced? Um, and is there, is there more to come, I guess? Uh, I don't know. I think what's some, I have some teachers that actually do like to take time out of our classes to address like current contemporary issues and both sides are always presented and everybody gets to share their opinion. It allows me to believe that my opinion is heard and that the other opinion is heard as well. That can be very beneficial. David, are you mindful of that as a teacher uh, talking about these things? And, and I, I guess, how do you let your students voice their opinions in a, in a way that feels authentic and feels productive? When teachers feel empowered to occasionally not be just curriculum-based, the students can feel that energy and they, they feel empowered as well. Because the reality is that these kids are overworked and overstimulated, right? So they they go from one activity to the next and they're Juliana's nodding vigorously. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've never seen a generation of students that work so hard. I mean, they're AP classes, sports, debate, got a job, got a girlfriend or two, and then like, you know, it's just like constant <laughs> stuff. And then on top of that, they want to be politically active, but then we don't give them a space to do it because we're like, well, we got to get through the standardized test. We've got a, you got a curriculum coming up, you know? And so every now and then when you just stop back and let them breathe and allow them to con kind of somewhat control the climate, it's very exciting as an educator because I, I learn more from the kids, you know, just hearing them speak. And I think that we as educators have to stop being so afraid to let raw energy come out. Because if you, if you try to contain it, it will come out in other ways that can be unhealthy. You know, give them their moment, let them feel like that moment is theirs, or else they'll try to go force a moment and it might not be as organic. You know what I'm saying? So when you try to police it, then they're gonna go do it in a, a less fashionable way. But when you say, okay, this is yours, you know, here's some parameters, but take it. A lot of times they'll, they'll take it and run with it and do it better than what we could have ever imagined. So the rest of the night is yours. Uh, we want to hear from you. Uh, so if you have a comment or a question and you want to um, talk to us or talk to the panel or just make a question and throw it out there, Kale or Cora can give you the mic. And say your name first and maybe who you represent or where you come from. Um, my name is John Martellaro. I live here in the Shawnee Mission District, and I'm the president of Kansas Families for Education. Uh, on the subject of, of finding solutions, there's been an awful lot of talk lately about arming teachers. And they say, well, okay, we'll give the teachers training. We'll give them a week or two weeks of training. That's not enough. That is not close to enough. Train police officers who are armed every day. <coughs> Even they make mistakes sometimes, even with the best of intentions. So the idea that you can take a teacher who are already overworked like crazy and somehow train them to be able to use a gun in an emergency situation just strikes me as insane. That is, I guess, one of the more uh, prominent and tangible policy proposals to come out of the last month or so of talking about what to do. Um, so. I'll ask you first, and if we have other teachers in the room who want to who want to pipe up and, and ask for the mic, we can we can do that as well. But uh, arming teachers, David. Mm -mm. <laughs> when I look at the climate of of our our country right now, you can't deny also something that comes up like race. Okay, and I think about it from the element standpoint that, like he mentioned, you have well-meaning, well-trained police officers out there who still make mistakes. Right, And statistics have shown that students of color tend to be higher rates of suspension and disciplinary action as, 
uh, taken against them throughout this country in our schools. That's just a fact, okay? Um, and one of my fears is that what, what kind of environment could be created if you start arming teachers? Would those same students be targeted in that manner, right? Like, would you have a disproportionate reaction to our underserved uh, minority students in this country who are already seen as victims? You know, mind you, many of their schools are already highly secure. They have, you don't hear about school shootings in these inner city schools, right? They're already having metal detectors and such. So, um, and I, I concur with you as well, the fact that teachers are already very um, spent. We are very uh, emotionally anxious. And there is no right amount of training that you could give a teacher to let them be effective. I mean, you're gonna either turn me into a police officer or let me remain a teacher. If you train me to be patrol around with a gun, my focus isn't going to be on academics. I'm not going to be an efficient educator anymore. I think we have another comment. Growing up here, I've traveled. I've come back here. I um, began a, a mediation firm called Best Case Scenario, all about alternative uh, resolutions to conflict, um, and actually studied about violence in the media and how it affects children's inability to learn alternatives to violence to solve problems. and. I, I wanted to um, reference um, a KU professor, Social Science Quarterly last July, came out with a um, gun politics uh, special issue. And when I heard him speak, I don't know if it was KCUR or um, Democracy Now that I heard him on, uh, but one of the comments he made is that studies find that if you own a gun, you are more likely to believe that a gun is the resolution to the problem. And that is something that we don't have models for alternative resolution to conflict. Um, I, and I would like to see Shawnee Mission, um, who has been a leader historically in, in education in this entire country, change the, the conversation to restorative justice and how to build peaceable schools, and I really, would hope um, that restorative justice gets its day in court, so to speak. This idea of restorative justice, that type of practice in schools, um, explain that and, and what might be advantageous for a school setting. I can't explain restorative yeah. justice. No. I'm not entirely sure what that, what that term means. Um, one thing I did want to weigh in on, though, pinging off of what you said, is that I very much believe that social learning, or as psychologists refer to it, observational learning, is a huge factor that is going on here. You know, everybody asks me, what do we say to our kids? And I say, well, saying it is about 5% of what we should be doing. <coughs> doing showing calmness in the face of adversity, turning off the TV so that children are not getting exposed and re-exposed, and modeling safe solutions, modeling ways that we can in engage in successful conflict because children will do what we do f to a far greater degree than what we say. And so I very much agree with the idea that if we say, don't shoot your peers, but we're walking around with lots of guns, I wonder, from an observational learning perspective, what message that sends. And I wonder about what it cues from an anxiety and an emotional perspective in the classroom, because where the fear goes, so does the mind. And if children are not in an emotional state to learn, 
then they're not learning, which is what we hope schools will be, but they're also not emotionally relating and engaging socially in proactive and kind ways to one another. Juliana, you look like you wanted to say something. Yeah, uh, so I also don't know exactly what she meant by the term she used, but if that were going in the line of instead of like just suspending a kid, actually working with them to get things to be better than the way they were, I think that that is an awesome idea because I think something that is proactive, instead of letting just kids that are in trouble sit in a room, um, actually trying to foster change, make it a better school environment, I think that is an awesome solution that would be great to look into. I don't know what my school policy is on that. I don't know what exactly we do when it comes to discipline, but I do think that discipline that trains students for actual like reform would be a very beneficial solution to the problems we face. Hi, I am a Shine Mission School District parent. I'm also a former Shine Mission uh, para, and I am now currently a pediatric nurse. And one of the things I want to talk about is the shooters, because I feel like we've talked a lot about being safe, which is important. We put money into being safe. What are we doing about the mental health crisis in this country? And I can tell you, just in our hospital alone, we are not a pediatric mental hospital, and the kids we're seeing on our four at a nine-year-old the other day wanting to harm themselves. And a lot of these shooters uh, are suicidal, and their kids, when it, um, one thing I wrote down was like, keeping the bad guy out. Well, sometimes the bad guys are in high school. Mm. bad guys. What can we do? What are these kids feeling that are wanting to take their own lives or wanting to take the lives of others? Why are they feeling so angry, so hopeless? And I'm just wondering if anyone has any insight to that, because that's what we're trying to address at our hospital currently. John Douglas. Well, ironically, that and restorative justice are, are all part of the same pie. Let's start with restorative justice and assume that it's not just in the school environment, mm. it's in the societal environment. Mm. And it is basically, restorative justice refers to disparate impact, which is talks with prejudice. Uh, when people are treated differently based upon what they are as opposed to who they are, then there are built inequities and inequities, and there's problems that go with that. Now, along with the issue of restorative justice, and probably more poignant to this topic, is the idea of trauma and trauma-induced care that is now a buzzword for everybody in my line of work and certainly in the education system, which says it's not okay to judge exactly what happened without trying to make some kind of attempt to find out what prompted some of that and go back and backwards. I mean, for most of my 45 years in law enforcement, it wasn't so important about how they got there, it's the fact that they got there. And I'm pleased to see that that's moving away. In the education system, a lot of effort has been put in in the last three years to deal with restorative justice, which they're just now coming to grips with. In law enforcement, it was called racial profiling, and it's a struggle. When I was there for the last 15 years, we had to work very hard to keep that from happening the best way we could. Uh, a lot of statistic gathering. But let's go back to trauma, because almost all the kids that get in trouble have some kind of traumatic issues that are taking place. Some of it results from their handicaps. Some of it results from their families. Some of it results from a lot of other things. And the biggest surprise to me, shifting from law enforcement to a school, was in law enforcement, you see the public in bits. 
You see them for about 30 minutes on a call, and you may see where they're living and how they're living and those kinds of things, but the impetus is to get there, resolve it, and get on to the next one. Fortunately, in the school district, and that is changing in law enforcement, I believe, but in the school district, a lot of effort and a lot of work is going into what's making this happen the way it's happening, and not just approach the kid because they put their head down in their hoodie and covered up it in the school like they're sleeping. That doesn't necessarily mean they're lazy. It may mean that they were up all night taking care of their, uh, their siblings because their parents were not there or couldn't be there or a lot of other things. So how does that tie in with the shooter? This book is still out on that. I, I spent time with a psychologist today, but we're going to want to help us possibly do some training. And a lot of the things we know about it or thought about the shooters are not necessarily accurate. For example, after Columbine, the great buzzword was, these kids are being bullied. And because they're being bullied, they're responding and they're acting out and they're going after their bullies. Well, they were. But now when you look at the totality of all the shooters, actually only 30 to 40% were ever bullied, and some 50 to 60% were the bully. But now the question is, why were they the bully? And what was it, it wasn't happening at school, but maybe it was happening at home. Yep. So that goes back to what I said a minute ago. The battle should not occur in the classroom or in the hallway. The battle to stop these things from happening should start long before that, working it out. Yeah, I want to jump in. David, in the classroom, are you looking for these things? Um, how do you assess um, trauma? And how do you, um, and you can't head it off, but how do you deal with it? Yeah, and that's what I was just thinking about. I'm like, to be fair, that's a lot to ask of a teacher. You know, to, you want me to create the most intelligent student that I possibly can and make them feel safe and judge trauma and make sure they all feel welcome. And carry and, a gun, don't forget and, that. And carry a gun and be trained to do so. And then I, I might need to go to the restroom. I mean, like, there's so many things. <laughs> and it's only 45 minutes, right? And so I feel like, if anything, what this conversation shows is we have to get back to community-based schools. And that community has to be built around the school to provide institutions to support the fact that when those kids walk into school, don't, the main focus is on learning. Because the administrators are spent, the counselors, there's not enough counselors in the school, right? And then you want the teachers who are overstaffed or sorry, understaffed and overworked to, to be all of that for you. And, it, and, and then you're also going to give us pressure about test scores and, um, you know, IB and AP testing and all this kind of stuff. So I feel like we need to get back to, the, to looking at funding and support for our communities so that we know our, our students that are coming in, you know, um, building trauma units and, and support networks outside of the school outreach programs where if we see a kid that has issues, we can send them to get that kind of help or a parent has institutions around there that they can get that support beyond the school. Juliana, what's it like at the student level? Okay, so on the issue of mental health that you brought up, uh, you mentioned how you saw a nine-year-old girl who had suicidal thoughts. I think one of the largest problems in our age group, my age group, and even everyone in this room's generation is that we're so connected with social media um, that we find our self-worth, like especially kids my age, we find our self-worth in the things people say online. We're always on our phones. And it 
it's become so easy for us on like Twitter and Instagram for kids to just say exactly what they think right when they think it without having any consideration of how that affects the people around them. And that's something that you see, especially in politics, where both Democrats and Republicans are calling the other side names, uh, making generalizations about different groups of people, and they don't keep in mind that this affects a person, that this affects uh, how they see themselves. And in the same way, just about any issue, we're making broad generalizations, calling people names, and all age groups are doing this. And so I think something that every single one of us can do to stop these feelings, to help the way people view themselves, to help students regain a sense of self-worth, is to watch how we conduct ourselves online, how we conduct ourselves in conversations, instead of typing what we instantly think right when we think it, actually be concerned for the people around you, show love and compassion, and have understandings that everyone has a different opinion. Because I honestly think that social media is one of the reasons why people and students have become so so easily like fall, fall victim to mental health problems so easily. Uh, I, should, I would say 450 students per council, that's actually lower than the national average. That was, a, that was a topic we addressed just a few weeks ago. Kale, you had a comment over here. They've been, they've been waiting for a while. Hi. Oh, Lou Ann Fox, I know you. You can stand Hi. up. Is this on? Okay. Yes, it is on. Um, Lou Ann, stand Hi. up. Stand oh, up, Lou Ann. I, I'm a teacher, and I've, I've been teaching since before Columbine, and um, <clears throat> the question about like thinking about the shooters has really uh, made me think this through a little bit, and uh, so forgive me for a second here, but it's just, I think we have to really understand that, you know, and this might have been touched on earlier before I arrived here, but I don't think urban kids really want to shoot up their schools. This is really an issue that has some, some race and class privilege around it. I mean, it really does. Mm -hmm. And what's happening, speaking as a teacher, and, and I'm qualified to sort of do this because this is like the area in which I live for like 10 to 12 hours a day. What's happening is that you're getting students and past students who really are upset and who really need help. And I know there are factions that say, we can't talk about the mental health issue because this really is a guns kind of issue. But I see them as all so badly, right, interconnected. What's happening in the schools where kids are getting shot up is that, you know, these kids are growing up now, right, since Columbine, knowing that, because they're fed this all the time, that however comfortable they are, and they're kind of comfortable where they are economically, they can't look at that they're going to be that way down the road because they're going to face crushing debt. Right? So there's huge pressures in schools, huge pressures to be in AP classes, huge pressures to be in many AP classes so that they can ease some of that debt by getting college credit sooner, not getting enough sleep. The bullying that we don't think is happening has gone underground and it is social media and it's pervasive and it's not the bullying that we went through when we were in school. It's 24-7. It's, it's stuff that comes at these kids constantly and they don't really have an outlet. And because they don't, that's why we're seeing the rise of suicide, because it's hopelessness turned in. And when that hopelessness is enraged, and it goes out, and the guns are right there because they're that accessible, and they look to the adults, and the adults are not showing that we can do discourse well. We've devolved into fighting and fighting and fighting. I mean, everything is all connected to everything else. So. 
when you hear kids are like, well, he was upset at his girlfriend, so he went up and shot the school. And, and I'm from Omaha originally, and years ago, some kid went into an Omaha school in Millard, actually, and killed his teacher just because of a beef for his teacher. Because that's the one thing that they can control. Everything becomes so narrow because the pressure is everywhere, so it's the one last thing that likes them. The fight with the girlfriend, the, the fight with the teacher, didn't make the whatever team. Ooh, and I want to. I want to get. Sorry, I don't. I don't want to cut you off. I want to get my my panelists to to respond to some of the things you're saying. If you want to. Well, what I guess what I just want to say is that having relationships really is this important thing. It's not just the nice fuzzy magic kind of thing. But we don't have any time for that because testing and instruction and testing and instruction and testing and instruction is inter is interrupted because we got to do all these safety drills. Yeah. Is there a, a response to that? Would... Is there a response to that? I would love to respond. I, I think we live in an achievement-oriented, pressurized, and severely relationally impoverished environment. A tweet, a text is not a replacement for a relationship at a biological level. We respond differently at a biological level to in-person interactions than we do interactions via social media. And when I hear people say trauma, I agree. And I think that relational poverty is a vastly underlooked form of poverty, and it is pervasive in our culture. So already we're impoverished as a culture. We don't live as hunter-gatherer bands reliant on one another anymore, even though our biology is kind of prepared for that. And when we compound that with additional traumas and with children growing up in, in homes where somebody was working five jobs to put food on the table, we are not talking about a generation of youth that have a lot of coping resources. Mm to call upon when the girlfriend is the last straw. And just to clarify, you're not suggesting that we all go live like hunter-gatherers? I don't know. Okay. Maybe. Uh, David, how do you build relationships with students? Well, you know, I know we've, a lot of the talk, and it's easy to blame social media has come up, right? Like that because of social media, we're all detached. But let's not forget that social media brought us here tonight, right, mm -hmm. to have a conversation. Yeah, so cool. I think, yeah, like you use the vehicles that you have. Um, and they can be positive because the key word in it is social, you know? And so why not turn it on its head, right? What needs to happen is conversations. What needs to happen is sometimes arguments, you know? I mean, I, I sound like I'm older than I am, but like I come from a day when like, if you said something about somebody, they were gonna come in the hallway and be like, yo, like you can't talk to me like that. You know, and it might even be a fist fight, but at least there was some kind of, interpersonal relationship and maybe we can use social media to create that you know if I don't know again I know that schools are spent but if you're tracking social media and you see that kids are having negative tweets with each other bring them in and say okay you said this about this person why did you say that say that to them right now as, as they're in front of you create a dialogue and see how things change you know mm -hmm. as opposed to letting these things happen and then these kids walk right by each other as if what happened on social media is not really real. It's a separate life. And I see it all the time. These kids will be right next to each other, iMessaging on their Macs, which are really nice. Thank you, district. But they're iMessaging on their Macs, but they won't say hello to each other. <laughs> you know, I was like, just turn like, right here. Yeah, and you said you had a, the, the person next to you had a question as well. There's another student. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, hi, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a junior. I go to Central It is very upsetting as a student and as someone who thinks that or has a, a sense of self in terms of knowing the facts and addressing them in the best way possible, but having the door shut in your face and someone saying, you're a child, you can't even vote, why should I listen to you? Yeah, do you, 
do you and your friends feel, um, I guess, uh, more energized to, to, to address these issues more publicly and take these issues to adults? Yes and no. Yes, we want our voice to be heard, but no, because in a sense we feel we can't trust adults. We can't trust adults to carry our voices. Because yes, we are the next generation, but you're not letting the next generation be heard. You're shutting us out, and we're not going to know what we're doing when we get to that board and we get to that voting place, and we have no clue what's going on because no one's giving us the information. Well, I, I think what you're what you're getting at, or what, what you're what you're asking is, is, and what I'll ask the panel too is. Is there going to be something that happens as a, as a result of Parkland and all the conversation that's come up about it? Should there be something that happens? Is there something big that needs to happen or, or not? Juliana? I think something certainly needs to happen. I think the problem with the discussions and debate that we're having right now is there are like two narratives, basically. And there's the ban all guns narrative, and then there's the arms teacher narrative, and both these narratives are so on complete opposite sides that nobody's willing to compromise and work together. And I think it's really easy to think that like our opinion is the only solution to the problem, when really this problem is such a complex issue as we've already addressed, that there are so many different things that are interconnected together, that our problem is the fact that we're not willing to listen to each other, and it can be because of age, it can be because of political affiliation, but overall, we're not willing to listen to each other and we're not willing to compromise and even kindly disagree. And so I think that's something, if we can work towards compromise, if we can work towards understanding, listening to each other, that's the way that we're going to actually have a solution, that we're gonna have a future when it comes to safety in schools. David, it looks like you wanna say something. Yeah, you know, first, I was listening to the young lady and I have to first, uh, commend you because you stood up and what you said took a lot of guts, right? You made yourself very vulnerable, voicing your opinion that, like a lot of you, you feel like you can't be heard. But I challenge you. I challenge you because no time in history have we not had in our revolutions young people stand up, right? And you look at like a person like Malala Yousafzai, right? If you know her story, you know, 14 years old, stood up against the Taliban and you know, for education of girls in a country that has far less rights than we do. So I think you do have the means and don't wait for permission. And the, edu the, the, the education is out there. You guys have, with the touch of a button, you can find information like no generation before and challenge lawmakers or whatever else. But I also challenge you to be patient mm -hmm. because your civil rights uh, moment right now that you guys are a part of is like other civil rights moments. They go on for a long time. There is no end game. And as soon as you start thinking there's an end game, that's when more issues come up, right? People thought, oh, we're in a post-racial society. Barack Obama was president. Everything's all good. And you have more racial injustices than any period in a long time, right? So, okay, that problem has not gone away, and we've been talking that, about that for how long? Women's rights is still an issue. Lily Ledbetter Act didn't get passed in 2009. Women are still not getting equal pay. So your fight is not gonna be over for a long time, young lady, but if you sit down now because you don't get instant gratification like you do when you make a post, right, then that's exactly what those lawmakers want you to do. We'll give it two months. Watch, they'll get tired of it in a little bit. They're, they're gonna get all steamed up and then nothing's gonna happen and they're gonna quit. But if you look at it as 10, 20, 30 years, your children, your grandchildren fighting it, that's when you're gonna see some change. Mm -hmm. 
Oh. Hi, um, I'm Josh Marvin. I'm a junior at Shawnee Mission Northwest. And what I'd like to say about the issue of school security is that since the parking shooting, I've seen people propose solutions on everything from finding kids who seem like the mentally unstable school shooter type and cracking down harder on them, to limiting our consumption of violent movies or video games, to turning schools into places with clear backpacks and metal detectors and armed security guards slash teachers at every corner. I guess what I have to ask is, one, how do we balance liberty and security, keep community-based schools that encourage learning without feeling like a prison, and then two, you know, what, what do we consider when we're thinking about this issue and realize that other countries where this doesn't happen have mental health issues, have access to the same violent media that we do, but don't have a massive proliferation of firearms everywhere. So I guess what I'd say is like, when are we going to, you know, focus on guns in addition to everything else like mental health or media or social media? and to how we balance liberty and security. In schools as a student or as a teacher, do you feel like this is not gonna get solved until or unless there is movement on gun control? Um, so first, like Josh asked, when are we gonna talk about guns? I don't think it's really a question of when. I think we're already talking about guns. I think it's a question of what are we going to do about guns? Going to school, would having more specific gun control legislation, would you be an advocate of that, or would that, would that make your, your school situation better? Personally, I don't really think that that would like, make me feel yeah. better. I don't think, I, I'm more concerned about the individuals that are causing these problems. And my opinion is very different than a lot of students at my school, and I recognize that. And I'm definitely in, like, open to compromise. I'm... I think that, like, we already have regulation, for instance, with who gets guns when it comes to mental health issues. Uh, also, individuals that commit felonies and stuff like that. And the problem is that this stuff isn't enforced the way it should be. And we want to prevent people that have serious mental health problems from having guns. That's already been an effort that has tried to, like, been pushed forward, but it hasn't been enforced. So maybe it's more of looking at enforcement of what we currently have as well, because if you can't solve what we, or if you can't solve the problems with what we have right now, how are you supposed to provide even more solutions? I'm interested. You said you're in, you said you're in the minority among your peers. Mm -hmm. What's that like? Okay, well, uh, I'm in Young Republicans at my school, so I'm like, uh, I think that my generation is uh, more left leaning. I wonder what I you, I wonder what you feel about the uh, the Parkland survivors who become very prominent. Uh, gun control advocates, mm -hmm. you know, social media stars. Um, mm -hmm. Do you feel that they speak for you? No. Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, I mean, my, yeah, no. Yeah. Like, I have a different opinion than that. I, I only press you on it because I think from an out, you know, outsider looking in, mm -hmm. I think there's often the assumption that, you know, the, the students who are now, I think, on the, the latest issue of, of Time Magazine, they're on the cover, mm -hmm. that like, oh, that's, that's teenagers these days. Like that's that's what they all think. Yeah, that's they're, they're, they're not, that's all behind not me. it. Right. That's not me. I mean, Josh and I are we're best friends, and we completely disagree. But that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> that feels good. I th yeah. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> well, we're up against the time, so I wanted to to thank you all. Give yourselves a round of applause for participating in that. Uh, I want to thank our panelists: David Muhammad, Juliana Kantner. 
Dr. Aaron Hambrick and Chief John Douglas. Thank you to our student helpers, Sam Fay, who's about to come back up here, uh, Cale Chapman and Cora Selzer, who are out in the audience hustling around trying to give you the microphones, uh, Brittany Garcia, who helped greet you when you came in, uh, as did Matthew Trecek, and he also monitored our Facebook Live video, and then Margaret Veglin as well, who was my social media manager tonight, tweeting from No Wrong Answers' own account. Thank you so much. Give the students a round of applause. I also want to say a thank you to Chris Young for producing the event here live tonight. Radio producers step out of central casting. They all find you guys in the same spot. You all look the same. Beards? No? Okay. I do also want to thank Matt Hodap, who's not here tonight, but he will be editing all this into a listable podcast to be released next week. Thank you to the Shawnee Mission School District and KCUR 89.3 Kansas City Public Radio for helping us put this event on. And really, again, thank you to the audience for this lively discussion. Um, as you can tell, this isn't over by a long shot, but uh, this, I, I hope, felt very much like a step in the right direction. And I know I have some of my teachers out there, so what I always say at the end of our podcast... Kids, listen to your teachers. <laughs> <laughs> Be nice to your teachers. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you.